Good morning again. It's good to see you. If you've got a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I, I'm going to pray here in just a moment. Uh, and I want to remind you, if you don't get the church email, we did, we sent you a little note just letting you know, or the children's ministry email. We, we're just letting you know that today's subject, because we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, just verse by verse, is a little bit more mature in content. Uh, so we want you to know that so that you can make a decision as a family as to whether or not uh, you want your kids to be sitting with us and joining us for this uh, message today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and if you'd feel more comfortable with your kids learning and growing in children's ministry today, you can just hop up. They'd be, they're ready to receive you. They'd love to have your kid join uh, in that. Uh, and as I pray, if you'd like to do that, you can, uh, but that's at your discretion as a family. So we are going to be talking about Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30 today, which again just deals with a little bit more mature content there. So let me pray for us, and uh, if you want to check those kiddos into children's ministry, please do, and then we'll continue forward in God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Mark and the team and how they led us uh, really to sing the gospel to ourselves uh, and to reflect it back to you as we thought about the fact that you hold us fast, that you save and redeem us, and then that you hold us fast, and that you are our cornerstone. And it's upon you that we build our lives. And that's what we wanna learn to do today, Lord, as we come to your word, what you have spoken. Uh, we pray that you wouldn't pull any punches from us, Holy Spirit, that you would come and teach us and instruct us in what is right. And we pray that you'd help us to receive it. And even in weighty subjects, especially, Lord, in weighty subjects, we pray that you would come to us and uh, in your kindness, which you have told us leads us to repentance, that you would teach us how to walk in this regular pattern of confession of our failures, receiving of grace, and then walking in renewed righteousness. Help us to do that, that we might be pleasing to you, that we might be salt and light in the world as you have told us to be. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, um, so I love the movie Karate Kid. How many of you have seen the movie Karate Kid? One of the reasons I probably love it has nothing to do with the movie, which I'll talk about in a moment, but I have this memory from when I was a kid where I went to see Karate Kid with my sister, my dad, and then my two cousins, Ryan, who's my age, and Jordan, who's two years younger than us. And as we were, went to see this movie in the theater, I don't know, I maybe was like eight years old or something like that, and Jordan was then six. And the whole way back from the movie, uh, you know, it inspired us all to want to take karate. And so my younger cousin, Jordan, who regularly, like if you have two boys, they kind of beat up on each other a lot, right? And that just happens. And so there was a lot of kind of beating up on each other. I have a sister. I was not allowed to touch her, right? So there was not a lot of beating up going on in our house, except for like she beat me up, right? And I couldn't do anything in retaliation. Uh, and so we, we would... Uh, Ryan and Jordan, though, would kind of rough house with each other. And the whole way back, Jordan was saying to his older brother, Ryan, I'm going to take karate. I'm going to mess you up, man. Like, I, you're, you're not going to know what hit you. You're going to regret picking on me. So it's all this big talk, like just a lot of big talk. And as we pull up in the sweet, like, 1988 Dodge Caravan with the wood paneling on the side, right, which is crucial because it's got, like, the, the sliding door. As we pull up to Jordan and Ryan's house to drop them off after the movie, Jordan proceeds to open the door. He's closest to the door, and he, he pauses for a moment. You can tell he's got an idea. You don't know what the idea is. He turns and just hits Ryan as hard as he can. Boom! In the arm. Jumps out of the car, slams the door, and runs as fast as he can to the door of his house. But he didn't think well, because Ryan, his door's open. He's after him, 
in like a, a nanosecond. He's after him. He's faster and bigger than Jordan. Jordan gets to the door and here was the real failure with the plan. The door was locked. <laughs> and poor Jordan tugged on that door and just went, let me in, let me in. No one responded. Ryan caught him in the entryway and just pummeled him. <laughs> it was brutal. I'm sure my dad at some point yelled out there, hey, stop. You know, they opened the door and all was fine or whatever. But that was my memory of seeing Karate Kid. But if you remember the movie Karate Kid, let me get to the actual movie. If you remember the movie, do you remember the penultimate scene? It's right before the famous crane kick, right, where Daniel wins the All-Valley Karate Championship Tournament. He wins it over Johnny Lawrence. So Johnny Lawrence is the antagonist. Daniel LaRusso is the protagonist being picked on by Johnny Lawrence all throughout the movie. And of course, in the penultimate scene, John Kreese, who is the coach of Cobra Kai, to which everyone says, boo, right, Cobra Kai? Right, so he's the coach, and he pulls Johnny aside as he's fighting Daniel for the championship, right before the final scene, and he knows that Daniel has a hurt leg because of a previous injury that he'd received in the tournament, and he's looking at Johnny, and he gives him instruction. Does anybody remember what he says? Sweep the leg. That's right. Y'all are better than first service. They like looked at me like they didn't know. They knew. Those famous words. So you've probably said that at some point somewhere, right? Like sweep the leg, right? And what the coach is saying is fight dirty, right? Like take advantage of his weakness. He's got a weakness and you're going to take him out using that weakness. Well, I was thinking about that scene this week as I was looking at our text today because do you know that our enemy very much knows where our weaknesses are. And he has no problem going after those weaknesses. It's not as if the devil uh, comes after us and says, you know what, like it's unfair that you got this weakness over here in this area, so I'll just leave that alone. I'm only gonna come after you in the areas where you stand a fighting chance or where you, you appear to be strong. The enemy doesn't do that. The enemy comes after us in all these areas where he recognizes that we're weak. He has no compunction about that. He has no mercy towards us, right? There's a little play on Karate Kid, right? No, y'all remember Cobra Kai, no mercy, right? Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. That's how the enemy approaches us, with no mercy. And in particular, we have a weakness in this area of sexuality and sexual desire. And that, that weakness is only becoming increasingly evident in our society as we give way towards and loosen our uh, morals in this area. Now, so as we come to Matthew chapter five, verse 27 through 30, here's the great thing, is that Jesus is not unaware that the enemy likes to do this. Jesus is not unaware that we in our fallen state, in our fallen natures, have a weakness as it pertains to our understanding and practice of sexuality and sexual desire. And so he gives us lots of instruction about it in places other than this, but particularly here in Matthew 5, 27 to 30. And so he wants to address this issue of lust with us today as we come to this text to speak to it. Now, friends, even as I, I wanna try and answer two questions for us today, right? The, the big idea is very simple. Jesus would say to us today, a Christian must fight against lust to put it to death. A Christian must fight against lust to put it to death. And I wanna try and answer two questions for us. Very simple, right? Number one, why is lust such a problem? Like, why is it, what's so wrong with it? Why is it a problem? Why is it difficult for us? And then number two, not just why is it a problem, but how do we fight against it? How do we take up the weapons that God has given us to fight against it? And I'm just gonna tell you now, I won't have time. There's, there are so many weapons, I don't have time to list them all. 
but I wanna give you as many as I can today, and then I'll point you to some resources that I hope will help as well in this area. But hear me now, because this area brings up so much shame Even as I say, we're gonna talk about lust today. I know what happens in your heart as you're struggling. If you failed last night in this area, if you failed this week with putting your eyes on something you shouldn't have put it on, if you find that your desires are directed in the wrong way, and that happened just two, three days ago, I know that what happens is there's this sense of shame. And friends, even as I say some hard things to you today, I wanna remind you of the gospel of the grace of God. We're gonna begin there, we're gonna end there. That God's grace is big. It's sufficient that he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Those of you who are in Christ Jesus, he loves you. Those of you who are not in Christ Jesus, hear the word of God calling you to himself. We have the word which says to us that God has sent his son because he loves the world and desires that you might be redeemed. So friends, hear that. It's understanding and walking in that love that will help you overcome this sin and temptation. Not just shame, okay? So now that said, I wanna challenge you. Remember that in this Sermon on the Mount, we saw that at the beginning, he gave us these beatitudes where he was saying to us, this is who you must be in your heart. And then he's moved from that now into the section where now this is what you must do, follower of Christ. This is who you must be. We'll start with that. And then let's move to what you must do. And so last week we looked at anger. He said, you, can't, you cannot harbor anger in your heart. You have to fight against it. You have to get rid of it. You have to move against it. So that he said, it's not just enough to say I haven't murdered. You have to fight against anger in your heart. And now today, he's gonna say to us, it's not enough just to say I haven't committed adultery. You have to fight against lust in your heart. So let's look at, at the verses that we're gonna read today. And we're gonna take them in these two parts. The first two verses answer the first question, why is lust a problem? And the second two verses answer the question, what do we do about it? How do we fight against it? So Matthew chapter five, verse 27 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Those who read those words, do you get a sense of the weightiness that Jesus is giving to the subject? He's talking about being in danger of hell. He's talking about cutting off parts of our body uh, in order to fight against this sin. He's saying that if you've not just done something physically, but if you've done it in your mind, if you've done it with your eyes, that you have then done it, right? So we see the weightiness of it. So let's then attack that first question, shall we? Why is lust a problem? Why is it an issue that every Christian must be vigilantly vigilantly fighting against? So the first thing we need to do there then is define what lust is. Because I think we all sort of intuitively feel like we know what it is, but I actually wanna challenge you a little bit today and give you perhaps a little different definition of lust than you may have heard before. So I wanna define this for you this way. Here's how I would define lust. Lust is misdirected desire. Very simple. Lust is misdirected desire desire. It is using something or someone who should not be the object of our desire to inflame those desires. It is using someone who should not be the object of those desires to inflame those desires. We can do that with our minds. We can do it with our eyes. We can do it with our touch. 
But that's what lust really is. Now let me hit a couple things, why I give you that broad definition versus specifically talking about lust as sexual desire. Now here's why. First is that the term in the Greek is the word epithumeo, right? And what that word means simply is desire. More often in scripture, it's used positively than negatively. So Jesus in Luke chapter 22, when he's talking to the disciples and he says, I've, I've desired to share this last supper with you, this Passover supper. That's the word he uses, epithumeo. I have desired, longed, deeply longed. I've wanted to, I've desired to share this supper with you. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter three, when he says, anyone who aspires to be an elder in the church desires a good thing. Guess what that word is? Epithumeo. In other words, here in Matthew, Jesus is using it negatively. If you have this sort of desire, this misdirected desire, you are lusting. That's why it's translated as lust. And he does predominantly have in mind sexual desire here in this text because he ties it to adultery. If you have this in your heart, then you've committed adultery. So sexual desire is definitely the, the main context of what he's saying here. But I want you to recognize something. Lust is much broader than just misdirected sexual desire. Lust, we can lust for power, right? Lust is ultimately misdirected desire. It is saying, because here's, here's a key thing. As Christians, we need to understand that we of all people should most delight in sexual desire because it's a good thing. And I wanna make sure that one, you understand sexual desire is a gift from God and it's a good thing. When it becomes a problem is when it's directed in the wrong, to the wrong place. Sexual desire towards our spouse. Song of Solomon talks about this. The Proverbs talk about it. One of the great guards actually against lust is rightly directed sexual desire and the expression of that desire with my spouse. That is a guard. In 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul talks about don't, don't stay apart sexually too long, spouses, because if you do, you may become subject to temptation. You may go apart for a while for prayer, for fasting, for seeking the Lord, but then come back together. Do you see how practical that is? Paul's saying sexual desire is good. So as believers, we need to recognize that. Don't have a negative view of sexual desire. Have a positive view of it. Now, the problem is, when sexual desire gets directed towards someone who is not my spouse. That applies to you who are single. Sexual desire directed towards that image on the screen, sexual desire directed towards that person that is not my spouse, even perhaps dating and flaming my desire towards them, uh, fanning the flame of that desire, that's lust. Even towards someone that you're, towards your dating, towards whom you're dating, and may, you may even marry. If I'm married, it's any sexual desire directed towards anyone, not my spouse. That's what makes it lust. It's misdirected. The desire itself is not bad. Go back to what I'm saying. Epithumeo, that term, not a bad term. Desire, good. Misdirected, bad. With me, everybody with me? That's the first thing. The second thing is I worry, and I think this is less and less the case now. I worry that whenever we talk about lust, it's kind of like, all right, men, pay attention, and women, you can check out. Right? But one, I want you to know, as our, as our society, I recognize this, becomes increasingly sexualized, all the numbers tell us, women, you're struggling with this every bit as much as men are. You are struggling with looking at that thing on the, on the internet. You are struggling with that misdirected sexual desire as well. And I think there's still a little bit more stigma and shame probably for you because you don't expect to be dealing with it, but recognize we are in a context where sexuality, we have done two things. One, we have sexualized everything. I mean, I remember years ago watching a commercial for Uncle Ben's rice and there was this idea like, if you cook Uncle Ben's rice, you're gonna get lucky. And I remember thinking like, what on earth are using sex to sell rice? Like, where have we come? 
where that's what's going on, right? So we, have, I mean, we've sexualized everything. And the second is we have tried to break down the distinctions between men and women again and again. And as we do that, as we don't want to see the distinctiveness of female and the distinctiveness of male, what we do is we start to struggle with all the same things. So where historically perhaps women might not have struggled with this as much, it is every bit as prevalent now among women, in part, I think, because we have broken down a lot of those distinctions and sadly then exposed ourselves to the vices that predominantly would have been of the opposite genders and now they, they come to us as well. That's just a little aside. I wanna recognize, so really what I'm saying is this is for everybody. Now I wanna recognize too, now let me say this too, because you can struggle with lust in a way that doesn't have directly to do with sexually desiring another person. And this might look like saying, it's not sexual in nature, but boy do I wish I had a better spouse than the one I have. And I'm looking at that other person and going, man, if only my spouse were like them. If only I could be married to that kind of a person. Do you recognize that's lust? That's misdirected desire. That's desire that you are not supposed to have towards that person. Jesus actually doesn't, he kind of is tying uh, two things together from Exodus chapter 20 in this text. He's tying together the command, don't commit adultery, and the last commandment of the 10 commandments, don't covet your neighbor's wife. And we could say, or your neighbor's husband. And so perhaps ladies, even where that desire is not sexual in nature, perhaps you've looked at another woman's husband and thought, man, that guy seems to be so much better than my spouse. Or you're single and you're looking at somebody's spouse and you're saying, man, if only I could have someone like that. If only I could have that person. That's misdirected desire. Desire for something God has not chosen to give you. Not yours. He did not give it to you. And when you direct your desire in that way, it is lust. You hear me? So this is for everybody is, is really my point. For everybody. That's the first thing. We need to understand what lust is, and hopefully that helps you. Now, the second thing I want to say is this. We said that, that these next six sections, so it's last week's, this week's, and then the next four, these sections of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a, a prevailing theme in all these. And I'm going to remind you of it every week. And that prevailing theme is it's the heart that matters most. So that you can't say, Well, I didn't murder when you have anger in your heart, you're guilty. And here he says, you can't say I haven't committed adultery when you harbor lust in your heart. You're guilty. That's what Jesus is saying again and again. It's the heart that matters most. Why is lust a problem? Because where lust is in your heart, you have sinned against God and against another person. And so he's saying you need to examine your heart. It's not enough. It's not enough just to say I didn't do it outwardly. I was listening to a, a podcast about the NBA playoffs because uh, I, I like sports and by the way, Mavs are up 2-1 over the Clippers, in case anybody cares. No? Okay, all right, good. Just moving on. Unimportant. So I was listening to this podcast, right? And it was really interesting because they were talking about some bad behavior of these fans who are returning to arenas now. And they were saying, they were dumping popcorn on one of the players. They were using, they were using slurs. I mean, just things you shouldn't be doing, right? And it was really interesting because this person in the podcast, he said... He said, you know, with COVID, we've been out of these public spaces for so long, and it's like we've kind of forgotten how we're supposed to behave in public. In other words, what he was saying was, the problem is not what is in their heart that's coming out. The problem is that they just need to behave better when we're all together. And I couldn't help but pause and just think to myself, that's the exact opposite of how every Christian must think. It's the exact opposite. It's never okay for me to just say, as long as I mind my manners well when we're all together, then I'm good. 
No, it's what's in my heart that matters. It's what's in my heart that matters. It's not enough just for me to gather with you here on Sunday morning and be like, I, you know, I, hopefully I didn't, I didn't yell at anybody. I didn't get overly angry at anybody. I didn't like get in the parking lot and angrily honk the horn at somebody who was taking too long to pull out. I know y'all have done that before. Right, like, I didn't do any of that, I'm good. No, the question is what is in my heart is what matters most. Always for a Christian, it's never enough for us just to say my actions are good. Always examine the heart. That's gonna be a theme, recurring theme for every one of these sections of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's another reason why <clears throat> lust is a problem. Now, let's really kind of dig in here. Now at first, we're gonna be talking predominantly because the context here is adultery, so marriage is very much in play. But my single brothers and sisters, hear me, we're gonna come to you, okay? We're gonna get to this section where we talk a little bit about why else is lust a problem, unrelated to necessarily marriage specifically. But because this is where Jesus starts, would you agree we ought to start there? Good idea, all right, so. Here's the first thing that we recognize. Lust is a problem because lust is the root of adultery. Or maybe I should say lust is a root of adultery. Right? So when Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, right, then you have committed adultery. One of the things that he's teaching us there is he's saying, adultery is the symptom, lust is the disease. When lust is in your heart, this is what it leads to. So it leads to this breaking of covenant. It leads to this unfaithfulness. Therefore, it's a major problem because you need to be faithful. You need to keep your covenant. I keep my covenant with you. Your marriage is designed to display my faithfulness to you. So therefore, you be faithful to your spouse because it displays what I am like. That's why marriage exists. Not just for you to be happy. Not just to make babies and families. Marriage exists to display the covenant faithfulness of God and we grow in holiness, and when we display that covenant faithfulness. That's why it exists. So, lust is a problem, because he's saying, you need to be faithful, you know, uh, you need to be faithful because it's the root of adultery. Now, let me, just for a moment here, I'm gonna do a, just a quick aside, okay? Because the other thing I want you to understand is that while lust is probably always in play, there are other roots of adultery. And I wanna make sure that we don't just sort of think, okay, as long as I guard myself against lust and I'm working on that area, that's gonna be really helpful, I promise you. But there are other ways that are sort of unrelated to just that I continually give myself over to sort of sexual fantasy about someone that then leads to adultery. There are other things that lead to adultery too. I wanna make sure we're kind of aware of those so we can be on guard of them. Men in particular, let me talk to you for a second. There are two times where I find that we are particularly susceptible to temptation. Perhaps maybe a woman making herself available to us and we are more susceptible to give in to that or to, to move towards it. One is when we're not experiencing much sort of victory uh, or uh, success in our work lives or perhaps even in our family lives. But, but in particular, if we find ourselves maybe getting demoted or failing again and again, one of the things that can happen is a person shows interest in us and we think to ourselves, man, I'm not winning anywhere in life, but this person still finds me desirable. And we give way to that because it feeds something that we feel we need. That's a place of particular danger. Friends, run away from that person in that moment, run away. It is never be alone with them. Particularly if you know you find them attractive and they find you attractive, don't ever be alone with them, ever. 
The second time, we're, ironically, men, that we are often prone to temptation, susceptible to advances, perhaps, or even to make advances ourselves, is when we've just had great victories, is when we just feel like we've kind of conquered the world, and we're flying high, and we feel like nothing can touch me. I'm doing awesome. Look at me, and everyone should kind of want me. That tends to happen. So we have these great failures or we have these great victories. And in both those times, we're particularly susceptible to the advances of others that are not our spouse. We've conquered the mountain. What's the next challenge? Sometimes it's that person. You hear me? You're in danger in those times. Be guarded. Set the boundaries in place. We'll talk about strategies for dealing with that here in just a moment. Women in particular, can I say to you that in seasons where perhaps things seem so mundane and you do not feel desirable or, or that anyone is pursuing you, that's a time of particular danger for you. Because in that sense of like, it's just the same and it's ho-hum and it's humdrum and it's over and over, a man comes in and he begins to show, hey, I find you attractive. I find you someone worth pursuing. I'm showing some interest in you. That's a time of great susceptibility. I want you to be aware of that. And friends, please know that there are people who look for those specific situations to take advantage of them. Do not be naive to believe that that's sort of an innocent showing of interest in those moments. It is not innocent. It is intentional and it is heinous. It's what Proverbs chapter five talks about with the woman who is tempting this young man and saying to him, my husband's gone. He's gone to, and I've, I've paid my vows and I've made my bed sort of in this way that you should come and join me in it. And the observer watching from the window says about that young man, do you remember? Like an ox to the slaughter. He does not know it will cost him his life. Not innocent like, oh, I just find you interesting. It is preying upon moments of vulnerability. So, all right, that's the little aside. Other areas, other places and times where we may find ourselves susceptible. Let's move to the third thing that we see, but why is lust a problem? So let's get back to the main, main picture here. Why is lust a problem? Well, we see here in this text that Jesus isn't just saying lust is the root of adultery or one of the roots of adultery. He says lust is adultery. Did you catch that? He doesn't just say, hey, lust is a problem because it leads to adultery, right? He says lust is a problem because when you have lust in your heart, when you look at that woman with lust in your eyes, you have committed adultery. Well, why does he say that? He says that because when you partake with your eyes of that wrongly directed sexual desire, what you're doing, what you are doing is you are in your heart committing adultery with that person. You may not physically commit the act of adultery, but in your mind and in your, you've allowing, allowing those in, desires to be inflamed and to grow and to be like, ooh, yes, I want to sort of feel those desires and let them grow. When you do that through your eyes towards another person, you have been unfaithful if you are married to your spouse. If you do it and you're single towards a person who's married, you have committed adultery with them against their spouse. You, you are misdirecting those desires. Now, that's why he says... You have committed adultery because the point is covenant faithfulness. Let me, let's just play this. How many of you in here have been married for 50 years? We have any 50 year marriages? Look at that. Let's applaud that for a minute because that's incredible. <laughs> Praise God. 
That is awesome. So now let's just imagine for a moment, these folks have already had their 50th anniversary. Let's, I'm 13 years, well on my way, all right? So let's imagine now that at our 50th wedding anniversary, for all of us, we're standing there, we're sitting together, and we're just enjoying one of this company, and, I, and we say to our spouses, you know, I've been faithful to you for 50 years. And your spouse would say, man, that is such a good gift. Thank you for that. Well, now let me clarify. Because I've, I've never physically been with another person for 50 years. But about five times a week over the course of this 50 years, I have imagined myself being with somebody else. I have made a point to look with my eyes at these other women and imagine what they look like. I have made a point in my mind to kind of let my desires rise when I've looked at these other women. But I've been faithful to you, honey, for 50 years. How do you imagine your spouse might respond? Do you think they would say, well done, well done. I feel that you have kept covenant with me. Or might they say, how have you kept the covenant that we made? How have you kept the promises that you made if you've spent 50 years looking at other women, looking at other men, imagining that they might satisfy desires rather than me? In what way is that covenant faithfulness? Don't you imagine it might be that response rather than the first? Yes? That's what Jesus means when he says, if you have looked with lust, you have broken covenant. You have committed adultery. That's weighty, yes? Now, this is the last one. We're lingering here on why is it a problem because we need to get the gravity of it. What else does lust do that makes it a problem? Now here we've been predominantly talking, as I said, in the area of marriage, adultery. <clears throat> That's where Jesus is kind of camping out. But can I talk with you just a minute about single brothers and sisters here in particular? Why is lust a problem? What else does it produce that is problematic that, has, that actually doesn't have to do with adultery? Yeah, can we go there? So let's talk about you. Like, please stop, no more. <laughs> We're gonna keep going. Here's what else is problematic about it. Here's number one. It objectifies someone who bears the image of God. It turns them into an object. When you turn on that screen and look at that image and allow lust, inflamed sexual desire to come up in your heart, what you're doing is turning someone who is made in the image of God into an object solely for your gratification. That's what you're doing. You're degrading and demeaning a human being who is worthy of value and dignity, who has emotions and feelings and dreams and hopes, and hear me, friends, it's not just your brothers and sisters in the Lord who are made in the image of God. It is every single person. And sin has wrecked that image, but it's still there. And there's still the redemption to be brought to it. And when you give in to lust and set your eyes on that person, you objectify them in a way that is absolutely destructive to you and to them. And do not make the excuse, well, they took the picture. They stood in front of the camera. They were willing to allow their body to be seen in that way. I don't care. It's up to you whether to look or to not. It's up to them, and God needs to deal with them on the other side of that. We shouldn't be making ourselves visible in that way, clearly. 
but let's deal with ourselves first, shall we? Let's deal with ourselves first and let's ask that question. I'm objectifying that person. C.S. Lewis, as always, just has a way of putting things that strike at the heart. And listen to what he says about this. In one of his letters, he compares fulfillment of sexual desire through looking at pornography. Uh, he looks at it, this kind of objectification, uh, he compares it to a man collecting a harem of women for himself and of servants for himself rather than finding satisfaction in a mutual relationship of sacrificial love like marriage is supposed to be. And here's what he says. He says, and this harem, once admitted, in other words, to the mind and the heart of the man, once admitted into the heart and the mind, oh, I lost my place, there we go, once admitted to the heart and the mind, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover, no demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. Is that sobering? It's a good word by a brother in the Lord from years ago. You get what he's saying. He's saying you turn these people that you look at with lust, and not just the image on the screen, it could be the person uh, at the office. You turn them into an object for your own gratification. And here's the thing, when you're not married to someone, they make no demands upon you, so it's really easy to just use them for your own purposes. Your spouse, don't you know, needs something from you. Being married to them calls for death to self sacrificial service again and again. It's always harder than just satisfying yourself through an image and someone who makes no demands upon you. But when you do that, you, it's, it's a completely one-sided relationship and sex and sexual desire were never meant to be one-sided. They were always meant to be mutual and full of, full of self-sacrifice and self-giving. That's why it exists for the covenant of marriage. Now, the second reason it's a problem uh, beyond just adultery, is that it's idolatry. Lust is idolatry born out of the belief that God is holding out on me. Do you see that what you're doing when you choose to, to look lustfully at someone else, and again, remember our broad definition of lust there, saying, I wish that person was my husband, right? It may not even be sexual in nature, but when I have that lust in my heart, that misdirected desire, do you see that what you're doing is you're saying, God, you're withholding good things from me. Because if I had that person, or if I, had, if I could fulfill this desire in this way, when I do that, I'm saying I need something other than what you've given me to be happy. I need something other than what you have charted out for me in my life to be satisfied. And anytime we do that, what is that, church? It's idolatry. It's saying I need something to satisfy me other than you and what you have then given me to experience satisfaction in you. It's nothing short of false worship, worship of a false God. That's what lust truly is at its core, at its heart, idolatry. Friends, I want you to hear me say this. The pathway to fullness of joy is always in obedience to God's word, which means God is not holding out on you in this area of sexuality. 
If you're single, hear me, friend. The pathway to greatest joy is the pathway of abstinence until you are married. And if God never brings that marriage relationship into your life, the pathway of greatest joy is still never found in sex outside of marriage, never. Bleeding pleasure and it will always wreck your life. It will bring destruction with it, I promise you. Married friends, the pathway to greatest joy is always found through your spouse, always. No matter how rough your marriage is right now, no matter how difficult it might be, no matter how sexually unfulfilled you may feel in your marriage, there is work to be done, perhaps, no doubt, but never give in to the lie that the greatest pathway to joy for you is going to be someone other than your spouse, an image on a screen, a person at the office, a neighbor around the corner. Never, never, never is God's pathway to greatest joy and happiness anyone other than your spouse. Believe that. Believe it now. Because marriage is hard, and there are moments where it's easy to believe, I'd be happier if. And every time, it is wrong to believe it. Every time I spend time with a couple whose marriage is in distress, do you know that one of the things I tell them is I want you to understand that what we're fighting here is the greatest amount of joy that you can experience in your life. If we will work through this, we will get to a place that will be greater joy than you can have if you choose to call it quits. That may bring a temporary relief, but it will not lead to the greatest joy. You are minimizing your joy if you choose not to go forward and work this out. Always, we're fighting for more joy. So, let's move to our second question. I think we spent long enough on why it's a problem. Let's ask, how do I fight against it? Now, I wanna make a recommendation to you here, a resource recommendation, and it's this. Uh, as a friend of mine, he's a pastor in our denomination. He's written a great book, and it's particularly about pornography and wrestling, fighting against pornography. It's called, it's called Struggling Against Porn, uh, and it's by Benjamin Verbacek. But it also speaks to just fighting lust, I think, generally, too. So I would just recommend it. There's maybe one or two things where I go, ah, I might take a little different course on that. But by and large, it is a really effective tool. 29 tools to put in your tool belt to fight against lust, to fight against pornography. So I would highly recommend it. It's great. It's got these two, three-page chapters. So you can read like a chapter in three minutes and be like, oh, okay, great. That's a good tool right there to take hold of. So I'll recommend that because I'm only gonna be able to get you a few of these things today in the time that we have. All right, so let's start where Jesus starts here in verse 29 and 30. Let's remind ourselves of what he said. Read it again with me. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So there's two strategies there for fighting against lust that he's giving us in those verses. And then there's some others I wanna look at as well outside of this text. But the first one is this. The first strategy is make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. I'm quoting Romans chapter 13 there where Paul says essentially the exact same thing as Jesus is saying here. But notice this. When Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, there's two things that we need to recognize there. Is the eye or the hand actually the cause of the sin, friends? No, it's what's in the heart and the eye or the hand is utilized. And by the way, if I cut out my right eye, what do I still have available to me? 
my left eye. Jesus is not saying you literally should cut out your eye. You literally should cut off your hand. He's using the right hand and the right eye because the right side of the body, for those of us who are left-handed, unfortunately, the right side, biblically, is seen as the side of favor and strength, of greatest importance, all right? So what he's saying is, there is nothing so important that you shouldn't be willing to cut it out of your life if it's leading you into the temptation of lust. There's nothing that you should not cut out of your life if it's leading you or allowing you to lust. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, cut off your hand, cut out, cut out your eye. He's getting to that point of like, look, just be, understand that one of the strategies is don't make a provision for that to tempt you. So Romans 13, 14, listen to the way Paul says it. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Where it's possible for us to remove the things that inflame our desires, we must do it, right? There are times where you're gonna see that billboard, you're gonna encounter that magazine in the grocery store, check it out, and you can't prevent that from being there, but you can turn away from it as quickly as possible, and then there are other things that you can absolutely just remove from your lives. Can I remind you of some things I've told you before? You don't need a smartphone more than you need to not lust. You don't need to watch Game of Thrones more than you need to not see the naked bodies that show puts in front of you. You don't need whatever it is. I don't care how culturally irrelevant you and I become because we just can't watch the shows that everyone else is watching and talking about. Who cares? Get away from it. Make no provision for it. Just get rid of anything. If it inflames sexual desire in a misdirected way, not towards my spouse. That's where my desire should be inflamed. If it inflames that desire in any way that is misdirected, just get rid of it. Don't do it. Don't go there. Don't watch that. Don't have that thing. Don't, watch, don't open the internet in a non-public space. Whatever it takes. I cannot tell you how many people I talk to and they say, I'm struggling with this and I can't get over it. I can't stop. And I say to myself, well, what are you doing? And they're doing nothing. The strategy is, well, I mean, I try for a while not to do this. I say, okay, well, what boundaries have you put in place? Where have you made no provision for the flesh? Do you still have that? Where are you, where are you? well, it's my phone. Okay, get rid of your phone. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. Friends, you don't need that more than you need to not lust. Stop making excuses. Stop it. I'm not a behaviorist who just, is, who just is gonna stand up here and say, cut it out, just stop doing it. Look, I know it's hard, okay? But one of the strategies is to make no provision for the flesh, that's what Jesus is saying. So stop acting like you're fighting when you're not fighting. You're putting those things in front of you, you are not fighting. Not hard enough, not strong enough. You have not run far enough to say that you have run hard. That's number one. Make no provision for the flesh. Number two is see the eternal danger that you are in if you give way to lust. Now here, friends, I'm not telling you that you will be perfect in this, but the mark of someone who's in Christ Jesus is that they fight against this. They fight tooth and nail. Now, do not dismiss. We have the right theological category here and theological belief that we cannot lose our salvation. Somebody say amen to that. We're in Christ Jesus. We are in him. 
and he holds us fast and we persevere in him. But do not use that to minimize the warning of Jesus in this text because what did he say? It is better to lose my hand, it is better to lose my eye than what? Than to not grow in the Lord? What did he say? Then that your whole body should be thrown into hell. What is he saying? He's not saying you could be a believer and lose your salvation. We know that's not what the scriptures teach, but we do know also that there will be many who will say, oh, I'm in Christ, who are not truly in Christ. And he's saying the mark of the person who has the spirit of God in them, in other words, the person who's truly a Christian, the mark of that person is that they fight against lust because the spirit that justifies also purifies. You cannot have the spirit of God alive in you and not be fighting against this. Just give in over and over and over. There's no real fight in you. There's just excuses made over and over again. Hear me, friends. You are in danger of hell. That's the warning. Let me not take the edge off a warning that Jesus doesn't take the edge off of. I don't wanna do that for you. I want you to hear the weightiness of this. You keep looking at that image. You keep allowing lust to have its way with you. You are in danger. Hear me, be sobered by that. Cry out to God and say, save me, renew me, restore me, help me to fight. He will respond. He will come to you in strength. He will give you what you need to stand up under temptation. He will transform and change you. But do not believe that you can continue in this pattern and not be in grave danger. Romans 8 Verse 13 says it this way. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8 is all about a spirit-filled life. In other words, the normal Christian life. That's what Romans 8 is. The normal Christian life is a life where the spirit dictates and guides. The one where the spirit leads and directs where the spirit has mastery of a person in increasing measure. And he says in that text, if you have the spirit of God, you will be mastering sin. You will be fighting against it. Now, let's go to the next thing, the next weapon to be utilized. So see the eternal danger, friends. See the eternal danger. Make no provision for the flesh. That's what Jesus is getting at here in this text. But there are other weapons that are made available to us and I, I wanna point out one particular to you. If I had time and I don't today, one of the weapons I would love to give you and just go piece by piece through it, we'll have to do it another day, is a, a right understanding of sex and God's design of it. Now I know we've talked about this, it's a regular subject we return to, but again and again, man, I find men and women you know, in our premarital classes, this like, yeah, we live together, we have sex now. It's, you don't understand what sex is for. You're using it incorrectly, right? And part of a we- one of the weapons against lust is understanding why sex has been given to you in the first place. Why do you have those desires? Why do you feel that? Why, why, why does God give this to us? It's not just to make babies, okay? Uh, it has everything to do with understanding his covenant with us and then placing within covenant this longing for sexual fulfillment so that we experience intimacy in a way that only with this one person, you and me, in faithfulness with one another. I said I'm gonna talk about it, and I'm talking about it. Understanding the purpose of it, all right? But let, let me hit the one I actually want to hit today, and it's this, this. 
it's not just, what we've kind of gone at so far is like eliminate, 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 like get rid of, right? Cut it out, see the danger. But I want you to see the other side of that. The way to truly fight sin, lust and every other sin, by the way, is to be full of faith. Is to be satisfied, increasingly satisfied by who God is for us in Christ Jesus. That's how I would define faith, by the way. Faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. Not just I, I, I believe a set of facts. It's saying, no, I'm, I'm satisfied, like emotionally, mentally, spiritually. I'm satisfied with all that God is for me. He's enough for me. And he is enough because of Jesus. That's what faith is. And we fight against sin by being full of faith. Fight against sin by being full of faith. If I increase my satisfaction in all that God is for me, my desire for the things of the world, including lust, fades. It diminishes, it lessens. It takes the sugar coating off the poison pill of lust. We go, ooh, this is sweet, it tastes so good, but underneath it's poison, it's death. It just takes and strips that sweet, sugary taste right off of it. Shows it for what it truly is. Not only something that cannot satisfy, but something that kills. That's what lust is. And it's being satisfied, full of faith. That's what truly helps you to see it. Now, how do I see it? How do I, how do I grow in faith? And here's the answer I wanna give you from 2 Peter. The answer to that is through understanding all the promises God has given to you in Christ. Remember that Paul told us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In other words, anything he's promised to us, if we're in Christ, we shall have. There's no promise he withholds. Now, that helps us get rid of the idea that God is withholding something from us in the area of sexuality, something we don't have, that we want. Do you hear me? It helps us get rid of that idea, because that's a lie. He's not withholding. Then, we have to ask, well, what are those promises? Listen to what uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says. Now, just follow this. I think we have it for the screen, don't we? Do we have it for the screen, team? Yeah, perfect. All right, listen. Now, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you see that? All things that we need pertain to life and godliness. He, his divine power has provided it. Through, so how? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All right, so what do we just see? Everything we need for life and godliness, we have in Christ. Through knowing Christ. As I know him, as I, as I treasure him, knowing there is not just mentally knowing. It's treasuring, satisfied in, as I grow in the knowledge of him, this relationship with him, I grow in all that I need for life and godliness. Now watch, how do I do that, okay? Uh, for the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great what, church? Promises. So that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So that through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of, what's the word there? Sinful desire, what's that word? Epithumio, epithumio, that's the word, the desires. So that could be translated lust. You wanna escape from lust, what do you do? You need to become partakers of the divine nature. How do you become partakers of the divine nature? Through the precious and very great promises 
that he has made us. You wanna increase faith and bolster faith? Know what God has promised to you and treasure it. Love it. That's how you kill wrong desire with right desire. Inflame faith. Fan it into flame so that you say, this is way better. Can I give you a couple of examples? You wanna fight against lust, how about these promises? Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Listen, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It's a conditional promise. What do I have to do to get that promise? Walk uprightly. If I walk uprightly in the power of the Spirit, in the righteousness of Christ, if I walk in that, no good thing will he withhold from me. Know that promise. And then think to yourself when you're tempted to lust. Do I want every good thing or not? And then walk uprightly. I already told you, Matthew 5, 8, best weapon against lust ever. Best one in my life ever. Best one I think in the scriptures ever. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall what? See God, and I love the visual there because I get to see God. So here's the choice now. She walks down the street and I can choose to look and satisfy a lustful desire, but if I see her, who will I not see? The Lord. And the choice becomes real easy. Do I wanna see her on the screen? or Do I wanna see God? I wanna see him. And he's promised me I will. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Romans chapter eight, verse 32. Greatest promise in all of scripture in my mind. He who did not withhold his only son from us, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, there's nothing he withholds from you that is good that you should have. And the fulfillment of that promise is he already gave you Jesus. He already gave you Jesus. What else would he withhold from you? Stop believing he's withholding. Take the sugar coating off the poison pill of lust, my friends. Now, those are the weapons. And just listen now as we come to conclusion and then our right response is to sing to him. Hear me, because as we look at each of these strategies, I want you to recognize one more thing, and it's the thing we've seen throughout uh, the Sermon on the Mount. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that we have not been given a spirit of fear, or we might even say a spirit of lust either, but we have been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. So even as I urge you, friends, to put these practices in place, I want you to understand that you need to stop acting like you are a victim. We talk about, I've got this addiction, I don't doubt that you have partaken of things that have caused your dopamine levels to, be ri to rise and so now you can't satisfy those dopamine levels because you've created a chemical dependency. Yes, I understand that reality when it comes to pornography. The scriptures do not give you the out of saying, I'm just a victim. I'm just a victim, what can I do? Friends, you need to begin to believe who Christ says you are. You have been given a spirit of power and love and self-control and you need to act like it. You need to walk in that power and love, not lust, love and self-control. Remember that in all these things we're commanded to be in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the 
aspects of the atonement that we delight in and celebrate is the victory of the cross, not just over sin in eternity, but over sin now in our lives. The Spirit of God is in you, and he is strong, and he is a spirit of self-control. You are not a victim of lust. You are not condemned to look at that. You are not condemned to stay at the same level of sanctification. The Spirit will grow you if you will walk with him. And part of that is stop telling yourself that you can't help it. Stop telling yourself that. Walk in the victory and the self-control of the Spirit. It is a fight, it is hard, but you must fight. You must fight and fight for joy, fight for the glory of God, fight for true satisfaction in marriage, fight and fight and fight again. And when you lose a battle, confess it to your brothers and to the Lord, to your sisters and to the Lord, and then stand up and fight again. Grace of God is sufficient. It's big. How many times do we go to the Lord and say, forgive me, and that he would say, no, I choose not to now. Never. Never. He will restore you. He will renew you. You must fight. Pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for our time together today. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would, even as we prepare to depart from this place, you would help us to go in the victory of the cross and to walk in it. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters, particularly where there's that strong conviction. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would not surrender to shame in that. Where there are shameful things, we should be convicted. But we are not, our identities are not dictated by that shame. Nor is our future. So we thank you for it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would display your power, your love in the lives of my friends. They leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I kept you long, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna dismiss you. Our team's gonna play a little bit just to kind of help us move on our way out. Our prayer team is here. We'd love for you to come and just pray with us for a little bit before you leave today. But know that you are loved. Go in the power and the peace of the Spirit of God and go and fight this week, yes? Go and fight. You're dismissed.